Welcome to Cafecito con Math, a podcast about showing up, doing more, and doing better for people. We're on a mission to help people become visible, active, and successful in their financial lives. Join us. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Altman, and I'm the Philanthropy Director at MAF and your podcast host for today's episode. Earlier in the season, we've shared with you stories that may run counter to what you're hearing in the mainstream news. Rather than talking about how well the country is doing as households pay down debt and build up savings, we're telling another story, the story of those left out of crisis relief. I have nephews and um, young adults were missing that support system because as adults, you know how to adult. <laughs> but when you're transitioning from teenager to like young adult, they need that support out there. And I feel like if there was um, an organization like you guys focusing on kids who come out of high school, that's when you're kind of like lost. Many college students, particularly first generation, low income immigrants, go to college as a way to break the cycle of poverty, not only for themselves, but for their families as well. But as the COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated, that path isn't always so easy, especially when you're being systematically excluded from crucial resources. Joining me today to talk more about the experience of higher ed students during COVID-19 is April Yi from the College Futures Foundation. Hi, April. Welcome. Thanks. Hi, Alex. Good to see you. So just to start out, maybe to level set, Math and College Futures have been working together for about two years now since the pandemic started. Can you provide some context for that partnership? Sure. You know, when COVID began, which I guess feels like a, a different era now, it, was, it felt like a, this short-term crisis that was popping up. Our CEO at the College Futures Foundation, Monica Lozano, in kind of coordination with the board, was really interested in what we can do, you know, um, immediately. How can we help? And having had some conversations with folks at the state level, the sort of decision that was come to um, was that philanthropy could provide some short-term support to students. It was going to take a while for, you know, the state to get its ducks in a row, the federal government, all that, but we could provide sort of that short-term immediate aid to students. And so she reached out to Jose, your founder and CEO, given um, their previous partnership around the undocumented students, and asked if, if there was an opportunity for partnership given um, MAF's expertise in providing support to, to folks out in the community. And that's where we started working together. I, I remember when we first heard from Monica, I mean, it was in March, right? I mean, we we had just gone into lockdown and you sort of we didn't really have a sense of what was to come. We just knew like, you know, things were going to transition. We sort of had to, for college students, for workers, for everyone, life was going to change. Life was changing overnight. And so how do we, like you said, while we wait for the government, while we sort of see what plays out, how can we move quickly to address some of the gaps that come up? Folks just signed up really quickly. I mean, I think it's a testament to college teachers sort of, you know, role in the field and, you know, our longstanding commitment to students in California. But, you know, a lot of our funder partners too were like, great, that's something that we don't have to coordinate and figure out. You know, they were worried about it, they're concerned too. And it was um, really great to be able to pool these resources, streamline, you know, what's typically not a easy process in philanthropy. We're not going to require different sorts of 
processes. And so that was inspiring to see how we could all just be nimble, act quick and get it done. So let me take us back. So we have ultimately across this partnership, a little over $3 million to provide grants. And we would provide $500 direct cash assistance, no strings attached. So students can use it however they need, because part of it is we know that students will have different challenges. And then we launched the fund. And in part, because College Futures did such an incredible job of networking across the systems, we had 66,000 students apply in the first 24 hours. How do you, where do you go from there? (laughs) I mean, that still makes my heart hurt right now to hear. It's stunning. And it just tells you the the depth of need. And now with some distance between that moment and here, you know, we talk about like, why is it that, like, how do we reach students? You know, how do we, we have all these, you know, resources for students and, you know, that the state's providing and like, why aren't they taking them out? And it's, it's, there's something about the the no strings attached, you know, the beautiful kind of interface and the way that you ask the questions. I just honestly, I think there was a huge component was that this information was going out through trusted relationships, you know, whether it's from nonprofit organizations or the the segments. But to have that kind of response in the first 24 hours is, in some ways, successful, but in other ways, really heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I absolutely feel that. You know, maybe we could spend a few minutes just talking about how the pandemic has impacted students and how it shifted their realities. Can you share a little bit about what you've heard from students or what you've learned about how they're weathering the pandemic? There's no way to underestimate or overestimate, you know, how much this has changed their lives. Some may or may not have, you know, laptop computers and strong Wi-Fi. I mean, I think we heard a lot of stories about how students were trying to continue in their courses on their phones. You know, their smartphones, that's their primary way or going to campus or the public libraries or, you know, kind of the parking lots to try to tap into Wi-Fi and finish homework. So it's affected. And, you know, that was sort of the first semester. And then I think over time we've seen, you know, declining enrollments and folks deciding whether to, to take a semester or a year off or just to not apply in the first place if they're coming um, from high school. So that's happened. I think, you know, when they are able to log in, the notion of connecting with faculty and classmates online has completely changed the learning experience and the whole idea of having your camera on and what that means and being able to have side conversations or, you know, date or flirt or, you know, make friends. Like the pillars of college experience. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go grab coffee or like, you know, like, did you, I miss that note or like, I wasn't in class yesterday, you know, what did I miss? Like it, it, you lose a lot of that in the virtual space. And so um, we've heard from students that it, it's just been really hard in every possible way. Um, really, really hard. You know, we had talked to Taryn. She said after classes closed, she had been taking her twins to daycare on campus. They were getting meals on campus. And so with classes shifting remotely, not only is she now trying to figure out remote classes, but what do you do with childcare? How do you now become a full-time parent on top of taking classes? So there was so much of that nuance and dimensionality. And I think that's one thing the crisis really brought up is that not everyone experienced the last two years in the same way. That's right. I've heard folks say, you know, we're all we're all weathering the same storm, but we're in very different boats. When you think about 
who researchers can contact or who, you know, colleges bring in for focus groups, you know, the students who have the time for that or who have, you know, the relationships to be invited are often not the students who are of greatest need because those students are hustling to pick their kids up from childcare or to their next job. One of the biggest headlines is that students are embedded in families, um, whether they're heads of families or, you know, adults helping, you know, their parents or something, but they're embedded in families. And this notion of individual students, institutions often think of FTE, that's full-time enrollment, you know, when they're counting their numbers and enrollment FTE, like, that's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about FTEs. We're not even talking about students. I think we're talking about, you know, humans and families, people. And, you know, the data that you collected through the surveys and just this whole experience, I think that was one of the hugest takeaways is how, how interconnected students are with their families. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that was such a big focus during these relief efforts was the students we reached in the survey that we collected responses for isn't a representative survey of all students across the state, right? Is by, like you said, by using this financial equity framework, we focused on students who face systemic barriers, who are documented, who are foster youth, who don't necessarily have the same support system that other students do, who had lost income, employment, and who are facing strains, either, you know, struggling like they themselves had gotten sick with COVID or supporting family members, like we just talked about with Taryn. You know, one of the things that stood out pretty sharply is that students who had dependents navigating this transition were more likely to report that they had trouble accessing the space or the technology that they needed. They had more trouble covering basic needs and were twice as likely to be late on their rent. They were three times more likely to use a payday loan to cover needs because their needs look very different from, you know, this traditional student profile that we talk about. That's why, I mean, another reason why I'm just so grateful and proud of this partnership is that your expertise and insights in sort of understanding folks' financial lives is a huge addition to the higher ed sort of frame around finances. Like our lens typically in our, in, you know, this that sector has to do with, are you low income? I'm doing air quotes right now as, as um, you know, defined by eligible for Pell Grants. That is the measure. Thinking about income, thinking about assets, thinking about dependence, thinking about, you know, lost hours, if you're an hourly worker, I mean, that you just provided so much more nuance to my understanding about what we mean when we think about, you know, equity, as it relates to poverty and and financial stability and financial confidence. I mean, that was a topic we talked about a lot in over the course of the last few years. And I'm really grateful for the learnings. I think there's a lot to continue to explore, but it's not how higher education institutions typically think about student needs and or think about them as parents or adult children who are supporting other members of their families. I want to bring us back to just sort of reflecting. So as these shifts are happening, as you know, College Futures and MAF collaborated on this work over the last couple of years, what did we learn? And how does that And particularly when we think about giving people cash, giving students cash just to cover whatever they need and recognizing, again, trusting students that they know what they need best, recognizing that it's going to be complex and it's going to differ based on each student's situation. What did you take away from the Emergency Cash Assistance Fund that we 
collaborated on? You know, I've been thinking about this because that's my job, actually. And, you know, I think we're already sort of in this space where we're trying to break out of higher ed being this like island, you know, it's as part of it, just this kind of elite space in our social, you know, in our society that's kind of on its own. And especially with public higher ed, I mean, that's what I'm focused on is like, how do we think about higher education as being part of the fabric of a society as part of like a connection to other state agencies or public agencies that are here to support a state, the people of the state. And so that's sort of the backdrop of what I was thinking about in terms of higher ed being connected to K-12, but not just K-12, to the, you know, CalFresh and to the, you know, other kinds of public entities in the state. And that made me start thinking about our partnership and how much there is to learn outside of higher ed. Our partnership is a perfect example of sort of the notion of like financial aid and thinking about poverty and wealth is just being defined as Pell, Pell eligible. And you know, your insights, your expertise provided this much more expansive, much more nuanced understanding of you know, students' financial lives. And those are the kinds of partnerships that I think we really need to continue to build for the higher education system to work better for students. That we can't just have institutions sort of in their bubble trying to work with students, but actually working with community-based partnerships to understand how to meet the needs of a community in ways that not necessarily institutions can do by themselves. The sacrifices and the strategies that they made was another takeaway. The framing around both was important for me because I think often, you know, we've talked about how the population that this fund served are those who, you know, were deemed those most in need. And yet they're so resourceful. They're so resilient. They're figuring it out. There's something about the money. (laughs) You know, $500 is not you know, it's important, um, but it's not going to change, you know, the, the life course trajectory of, of, you know, students unless, you know, you never know. I mean, maybe a car broke down and it changed whether they, they were able to keep working or not or, you know, things like that. So sometimes small amounts really can have a big difference. But I guess my point is that we heard from the surveys that often it was more almost symbolic in that it, it affirmed the recipients like belief in their ability to move forward. And so I think one of the big takeaways from our partnership, and I will credit you and Jose forever, is around, you know, the notion of confidence, stability, and why that matters. You know, it, it feels sort of ephemeral in terms of like, do you feel confident about the future? But it does, it does matter. I mean, the research showed it and it aligns with other research out there and my experiences in the field as well is that that investment in students' confidence in themselves and the confidence in the future. Our CEO, college teacher says, you know, we're in the business of hope and philanthropy. It really is that. And so emergency aid, these these small dollars can help change people's lives and, and in those kinds of ways can help push them forward when things feel really hard and to not feel like they're all alone. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, April. We really appreciate you joining us and talking with us today. It's my pleasure. And I'm so grateful for this partnership. 
Thanks for listening to Cafecito con Mash. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can catch the next episode as soon as it's posted. And be sure to follow us online if you want to learn more about our work, join a free financial education class, or get more news and updates on Cafecito con Mash. We're at missionassetfund.org and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.